welcome to, uh, to this morning, this afternoon. Uh, we're continuing a series on our values at the moment. Um, we had some fantastic talks. You can catch them in the pod, uh, podcasts if you, uh, if you missed them. Um, well worth doing. This is uh, just one of the things we really want to dig into and we've been wanting to do for a while. But let me start with this. This is Eddie. This is Eddie. See, years ago, Eddie was homeless. He was sick, his liver was shod and his lungs were failing. He had absolutely no friends and no family to take care of him. He was alone and frankly, he was dying. But one day, someone invited him to HTB Alpha Course, where he was welcomed, he was fed, he was invited onto the Holy Spirit weekend or what we call the Encounter Day. And it was there that he encountered Jesus and was filled with the Holy Spirit and received hope for probably one of the first times in his life. After years of support, this guy Eddie now volunteers at HTB and is part of God's family surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. He's free from drugs, he's free from drinking, now he has a home. A physical home, a flat where she lives, but also a home with a family in church. Now this is Eddie today. Isn't that tremendous? I could tell you a whole ton of stories like that uh, in this church as well. We had loads, but I had uh, pictures of Eddie, so I decided that I would use him as my pin-up today um, for God's compassion is God's absolute wonderful compassion, how it utterly and wonderfully restores lives and gives hope to the hopeless. You know, it's compassion that I'm speaking on today, um, and, and today's episode of Vineyard Values, as it were, but, uh, but you know, to understand what values are. Values are, are what describe us as a church. They're what describe you. You know, if someone found out that you attended Vineyard Church, if this is your home, there should be certain assumptions that they make about you. It's almost like, they should know what kind of person you are straight away. And then you'll know, you know that, that you're the kind of person that even when everything seems to be failing and messing up and it just seems to be absolutely hopeless, you're the kind of person, because you go to Vineyard, that always sees the positive, always sees the hope, always sees the light. They may not understand the kingdom theology that you understand behind it, but they just know you as a person that has hope. Maybe they think you're a bit zealous, a bit enthusiastic, maybe even a bit weird. Uh, but you know, But they know that whenever something's happening, whenever they need prayer or support or whenever they're struggling, they know they can come to you because there's something about you just believes that God can do the miraculous today and that God speaks and through his Holy Spirit. I love that. I love the idea that that could be how we're known. You know, we, uh, we used to have some uh, neighbors who live next door to us, hence neighbors, and they, um, and they uh, were a lovely young couple and we got to know them quite well. And over time, we, we just started to just be ourselves. And, and so when the guy had a bad back once, we prayed for it and it got a little bit better. But one day I caught him um, out and uh, he was on the way to his car dressed in a suit. And I said, oh, are you going for a meeting or something? And he said, actually, my grand's just died. And so I just thought I'd stop with him and just pray a blessing on him and, and for the day. And he came back later that evening and we, we saw the couple, we saw them both. And they said something absolutely remarkable. They said, you know, we, we told our mum what you did, um, my mum what you did. And she said, oh, oh, those guys, they must be like real Christians then. <laughs> I love that. I love that the fact that, uh, but actually, you know, she saw us and saw that and saw what we did as real Christianity. 
And indeed, what I'd love for us to be as a church that, that are known as real Christians of real compassion. And indeed, that's it. God loves it. He absolutely just cheers and celebrates. I can imagine it. Um, if when they hear that you're from Vineyard Church, that they automatically assume that you're compassionate because of the God that you believe in. I'd love that. Wouldn't you love that if you bumped in? I mean, I've done it a number of times where I've bumped into someone randomly and, they, and I've told them which church I go to or where I work. And they say, oh, the, the one with the care center, the food bank. Oh, you guys do a great job there. I'm like, yes, they do. Oh, this. Because God is jealous for his reputation for his church. And as Vineyard, that is one of the things we really hold dear to is our compassion. You know, even when Chris and Fliss retire at the end of September, you know, there are certain values of which we're speaking in this series. There are certain aspects of our reputation that will continue as they will in the vineyard movement in, in this country. And compassion is definitely one of those. So as we talk about being known for compassion, uh, let me give three things that I hope that that translates as. The first thing is I really hope we become known, or if not we are already known, as a place for the poor. And secondly, that we're a people of compassion. And then finally, that we share, we have, we bring a promise of peace. I'll look at those three and we'll explain what they mean. And all this amounts to that we would be known as a, as a place that compassion is something we're known for. So first of all, place for the poor. You know, the Bible has over 2,000 references of the word poor or likewise in the Bible. Uh, there is little that is spoken about in such stronger terms or so urgently. But one verse keeps it incredibly simple. You know, we can achieve whatever we want through this church. We can do great things in the world's eyes. But like it says in Galatians, all they ask is that we would continue to remember the poor. If we can do that, then we've succeeded. So who are the poor? In the um, in Hebrew, in the, in the Old Testament version, there's, there's two words that the word poor is translated in. One is needy, and the other one is oppressed. You see, to, the poor in the needy sense, is the, in the economic sense, is to have little or no resources that the world values. Either you need something. Uh, you therefore need something. If you have money, you, know, you can be an absolute horrible person. If you have money, you can just get away with so much and... Well, anyway, I can think of a few people. Um, but, you can, but the world will still do business with you. And if you have talents or skills and you're accepted, you're, you have opportunities, doors are open for you if you have something to bring. But if you have neither money nor have you been able to develop skills, the world is often not interested in doing business with you. It says that you have no marketable value. No one's interested in doing things with you if you haven't got something to bring. You know, more frequently, children are growing up in broken families where people don't or can't model how to process emotions in a healthy way, how to build healthy relationships or marriages, or how to manage money in a budgetary sense. And so these children, as they hit adulthood, they find themselves lacking what some would see as basic abilities, and the world labels them as irresponsible and says they have no value. You know, as I was doing this talk, it reminded me of when I was at university, uh, not university, sorry, uh, secondary school. We had, um, we had a number of these GCSEs. Now, I don't know if anyone did general studies. Did anyone do general studies? 
No, am I the, was the only school in this world that did general studies? Basically, everyone knew it to be the, the most easiest course in the world. Because all you needed to do was read something and know a little bit about what's going on in the world, the prime minister's name or you know, something like this. And, uh, and everyone just thought this was easy. My family, we didn't grow up talking about anything. We didn't talk about the news. We didn't talk about thoughts or politics. I pretty much just spent a lot of that time away from the family. And so when I came to this general studies, I really knew hardly any of the answers. I think I was the only person in the entire school that failed the general, no, kind of, uh, general studies exam. But the thing is, it wasn't anything to do with me. I wasn't um, you know, intentionally missing something. It's just that it was never a point for the family. And I just think of how many people are growing up that just aren't taught these basic things, don't have these conversations at home or with their friends, and miss out on what the rest of the world the rest of us just think of basic knowledge. And we, we don't call them idiots. We just accept ignorance and help them through that. You see, in our care center, we first satisfy the immediate need, that is hunger, by giving food. And sometimes that's all a person needs to get back on their feet or to catch up in arrears. But for many, behind that need is a lack of a nurtured ability a basic skill, whether it's budgeting or self-discipline, or perhaps they feel absolutely hopeless or full of regret, and so they self-medicate, when actually what they really need, what they're absolutely crying out for and don't have the words to articulate, is just for encouragement, for guidance, for someone to show them how to do something, for support, someone to look at them in the eyes and say, you have value. Let me show you what that value looks like, and let me show you how to walk in that value. You see, a couple of weeks ago, a regular guest at the care center uh, made this comment uh, to, to the team, and I love this. You see, out, he says this, out there, no one cares. No one hears. Everyone is out for themselves. But he said, it's different here. He said, I feel like I matter. There's always someone to listen, always someone to help. I feel loved, like you're looking out for me. You know, I can also think of a businesswoman in this church who gave up work a number of years ago so she could be a stay-at-home mum. And then after several years, quite unexpectedly uh, to, to her and everyone, he just suddenly divorced her, he'd filed the papers, and that was it. He was gone. And he avoided paying her any financial support. And instead, even worse, he took her to court, saying she was a terrible mother, that she can't provide for her kids, she hasn't got any money, she, and, and you know, she's just failing, and so he should take the kids. You know, that was an absolute devastating fact. She had no money to provide. It was right at that. And she didn't even have money to seek legal advice. And so we as a church, we started by just giving her food. We took their stress off. And then Tara and another uh, woman in the church, they just came alongside of her and they just supported her. They went down, visited her, helped her, kind of tidied the house, looked after her. And do you know what was really amazing? Is they just laughed. In an absolutely hopeless situation, these guys were able to see something more positive, see hope. And you know the amazing thing is that God indeed did defend her. When they went to court, the, the judge ruled in her favor, forcing her ex-husband to pay even more than he initially had to pay in the first place. And since then, she has found an absolutely brilliant job. Sorry, I interrupted your applause. But absolutely, God did an amazing thing. You know, our reputation also extends to organizations who know Vineyard Church as a place for the poor. Schools, local businesses, professionals, and even supermarkets are absolutely amazing in their support and their donations of food, equipment, and of hours of work at no charge. This is what it means to be known as a place of poor. 
for the poor. A place where people can come for refuge from the harshness of the world to experience kindness, mercy, and support. I always say this, but um, you know, I love the fact that they, people come into this place, whether it's a, a feed on a Monday or Wednesday or uh, on church on a Sunday, and they're not asked a billion questions. They're not judged. They're not, we're not asking if they're wearing the right clothes or not or what have they done this week. The first question we often ask is, would you like a cup of tea? Or a nice jammy donut, if there's any left after the service. Um, you know, I love that warm embrace. It's a place where you say, we're welcoming. And we show it. You know, if you, um, if, if you love hearing what the care center is doing and you haven't yet seen it in this fall, next week we're actually going to be doing some tours where you can actually see and get this. This is amazing. Where you can see the feed shop. You can see Kit. There's our Underfires clothing equipment store. You can hear about the work that we're doing to undo poverty by supporting social workers, children's centers, the women's refuge, and how we're welcoming Syrian refugee families as they arrive in the area. There's a lot going on, and, and thanks to you as well and your support, your donations, and indeed your prayers. We, as a church, are a place for the poor, and I love being proud of that. The second thing that I would love for us as a, to be known as a compassionate church would be is that we're a people of compassion. So compassion literally means to suffer with. You see, this is more than mere sympathy. It is where we identify with those in need and experience God's heart for them, those who lack. And to do this, to be able to break this, to be able to get to that point, there's something we need to do. And that's to first acknowledge that where we lack. We first need to acknowledge where we lack. It may not, or it may be economic, but it may be, or it's true, that we're all poor in some area at some time. Carol Wimber, who pioneered the vineyard movement with her husband, John Wimber, uh, she used this language, and I love this language, of the haves and the have-nots. You see, one day... Today, maybe, when you're sitting there, you're the haves. You have food on your table. You have peace in your home. You have joy in your marriage, and you have success in your job. You are the haves in all areas. But also, I can look at this room, and I can say that there's some area that many of us have not. On days, we have not food in the cupboard, or we have not peace in our home. The dishes are piling up. You know, all the washings completely overtaken one of the rooms, and the kids have just learned how to roll their eyes. <laughs> that was genuinely my Friday last week. <laughs> and there's no peace. We have not. Or we have not a relationship. And while you're usually okay, and that's not usually a problem, watching the royal wedding over the weekend actually made you feel particularly lonely. Or you have not joy in your marriage. It feels more like the Hawaiian volcanoes at the moment, spewing lava and destruction, consuming any joy and any peace that may surround you. And sometimes, unexpectedly, many of us have faced a have-not-a-job situation. And you just need a chance, a break, a hope. See, we can all be haves many of the time, but we are often also have-nots in at least one area of our life. At any given time, there are those times where we need something, when we have nots. You know, Heather was saying this about Christmas Day when we fed over 250 people, Heather, our care center manager. She said she sat on a table where one person could have afforded the meal like 10 times over. Money was not an issue, but they didn't have any family. You see, they have money, but they, do, they have not someone to share that time with. 
Conversely, on the other side of her was a small family who couldn't have afforded a single course of that meal. They have family, but they have not any money. And on the same table, there was this lady who was a guest of the care center. She came and she commented and she said, this is the first Christmas in 25 years when I've not been alone. She had, have not money and have not family. This situation can hit any of us at any time. You know, another example is uh, we have this uh, young girl that we're mentoring. She's from a Muslim family, and we're not mentoring, we're kind of just befriending her, really, more than anything. But she's going through this time where she's just, her and her mom especially, her dad loves her, but is a bit off the scene. They're just fighting. They're at each other's necks all the time. And so one evening, Tara just decided she needed to sit down with them. And she's making some silly decisions, don't get me wrong. But it's almost like, actually, they're just not understanding. There's no communication. And so Tara sat and listened to him for a, for a fairly long time, at least a couple of hours. And then she said, look, it sounds to me that you both love each other very much. But you're just not seeing that. You're not communicating it. And so she taught them. Uh, about a book that she read called The Five Love Languages. And she explained to them, look, you know, as a young girl, you know, as, as a mother, sorry, that you are just showing love by trying to do things for your daughter, by helping her, by making decisions for her. You're just trying to show the acts of service. But the problem is, is that your daughter, she just needs to know that you love her, that you're proud of her, that you think she's great. She just needs words of affirmation. And she said, just... Being able to shine a light on those two things, how they actually are showing love. The daughter, the girl we're looking at a um, relationship with, she just exploded. She said, Mom, you really do love me. I've never seen that before. And it was so sweet. A couple of days later, they actually sent a bouquet of flowers just saying, thank you so much. We've just spent a day together. We didn't argue. We had an amazing time. You see, Tara just read a book. She have, has a knowledge and she was able just to share that with those who have not peace in that communication. Such a simple thing. See, for us to be authentically be a people of compassion, that is to suffer with others, we need to first admit that there are areas that we have not. And we need to ask for those who have to share their resources, their experience, their support. You see, compassion is not about a hand out. It's about a helping hand in a situation you need it. I mean, are you feeling at this moment that your marriage is less than it could be? Do you lack a good friend that you can talk to about absolutely anything? You may have great friends around you, but one you can really be absolutely honest with. You know, we have to admit these have-nots and ask for help. And when we do, God always brings that right couple, that right person, the right support along that you can reach out to. What about this? And this is a real issue, and it was something I really want to address. Do you need some food? If having some food this week, a bag of food, would actually mean that rather than paying for food, you could actually pay a little bit off of the credit card or catch up with rent. You know, for months you've been telling yourself, feed that thing over there, that's only for people who really need it. How difficult a thing is going to get before you have no choice but to come along. Take the help in hand now. Admit that you have not, so that you can receive the have. Now this is a compassionate bit. You see, when we've admitted to ourselves that we are have-nots, and we've received from those who have, we can share our experiences with those who need compassion. Uh, I read it earlier, I think, in um, 1 Samuel 22, those who gathered around David. Now David, King David was going through a horrendous time. And it said, all those who were in distress... 
There was stress. There was too much going on. They were overwhelmed. They were in debt. They lacked resources and they were discontented. They were fed up with the system. They gathered around him and he became their commander. They saw someone who understood how they felt and they went to seek him out. Now about 400 men, healthy, good, strong, warrior type men, found someone that they could, that could empathize with them, could show them compassion. See, they were desperate, but they found a place where they could go. You know, sometimes someone without a job, someone who's just lost their jobs, just needs to have a conversation with someone who knows the pain of being jobless, who can empathize, who can look them in the eye and say, I know how you feel. Or maybe you, um, you know, also someone who's going through difficulty in marriage. I mean, we've had a number of couples that come around our house. I can think of one couple in particular that sat with us meal after meal after meal, and we had lots of time together. They were a great couple, but one day they finally admitted that their marriage was not in a good place. And we just said, well, you know, well, let's talk about it. And, and in doing so, their expectations were that every other marriage in the world was perfect except theirs. And we had great joy in telling them all the arguments that we've just had that day. And you know, that was it. They just needed to know that another marriage isn't as smooth and isn't as, uh, as stable as they think it is. That we can argue and we still love each other. And when they saw that was possible, things started to change. Intimacy started to return. Baby's now on the way. Um, we did good. <laughs> but just that simple thing of finding out that someone has been through what you've been through. What about depression? What about hearing that and finding out and feeling you're going for depression and hearing from someone that God still speaks to them? You know, this Wednesday, this Wednesday, it will be two years since I had uh, quite a serious bike accident. Um, just cycling home, came from a bike, landed pretty much on my face. Got some great photos if you're interested. And in that accident, I took a couple of months off and, and work was fantastic. But actually, what happened is I, I, I still struggled with uh, concentration, with energy. After about two months or so, you know, I'd be driving the car and after about half an hour, I was falling asleep. I really couldn't seem to concentrate. I'd be uh, having a conversation, someone would ask me a question, it would just blow my mind and my whole mind would go blank and I'd have to go to bed. It was overwhelming. I eventually went to a neurologist and he did some tests, some great tests. I really loved this one. It was like count to 10 and repeat these numbers after me and write this word and pick that up on the floor. It's just aced it. I was amazing. Um, and he did say that, actually. He said, look, you know, let me just say your brain is so sharp. You're, the different parts of your brain are so sharp. I was like, thanks. I know. Um, but he said, the problem is, is the connections between your brain are irreparably damaged. And he said, it's going to take some time for them to rewire, to reconnect, to start to think and put all these things together. You see, the thing is, uh, that was great. That was really releasing to start with. But the thing is, after a couple of more months, I was still struggling to concentrate, still struggling to think. And I actually started to wonder, am I ever going to be better? Am I ever going to be able to think more clearly? Am I ever going to be able to make these decisions? What's my future going to look like? And as I started to think about that, I got stressed. And as I started to get stressed, I started to get depressed. And the hopelessness, the hope started to fade. And eventually, someone came up to me, and um, we, we went for coffee. And just a wonderful guy, and he really could see that in my eyes. And he said, look, you know, tell me what's going on. And I told him, and he said, look, I don't know if you know, but a few months ago, I was going through the same thing. I was really depressed. And, you know, I started taking antidepressants, and they're not the whole solution, but they've really helped. Can I encourage you to start there? 
And so I fought against it. I hated the idea. I didn't want to be doing that. I wanted to trust in God. And I eventually, I had to cave. I said, I need help. And so I started taking antidepressants, and I felt so much better over time. I felt like I could start thinking about things. I could start having hope. And now I can actually sit with people who are saying, I'm going through a really hard time. And I don't say, well, you know, what do you enjoy? Can you just go and do that, make yourself feel better? I sit with them, I stare them in the eye, and I say, I know how you feel. I know what it's like to be in that dark place. But it's not where you have to stay. What is it that you have experienced that you can share? What is it that you have gone through that you can sympathize, empathize, show compassion to someone else with? First of all, you need to admit that you have not so that God can meet you with a have. And then you can be full of understanding, full of compassion. That we can be a church that goes out into the streets and talks to our neighbors and then we can be real with them. We don't have this pretense, this idea that everything's perfect and we're just like everyone else and everything's fantastic. Then we can say, hey, do you know what? We're struggling, but we also have hope. I would love for us to be a church that's known for being a people of compassion. You know, maybe even you've spent your life being a have in an area. You've always had money. You've always had good friendships, whatever it is. Perhaps you've always had, and you can still give to those who have not. John Wimble was known for driving around in his car with a bag of groceries, literally just looking for someone to give them to. And we did this at Christmas. We, uh, we had loads of hats, gloves, and scarves. And so we drove around in the, in the depth of winter looking for people who just looked cold. And I loved it when, they, uh, when we got back in the car. Uh, Taro stepped out, maybe got back in the car. And Bella sat there and said, uh, and said to her once, she said, Mommy, Jesus saw what you did and he told me he's so happy that you did it. I love that. Are you academic? Are you, you, know, you don't have to be the cleverest person in the world, but maybe you could tutor a friend's child or a family's kid that you know and it would help the parents and give them a nice little break, but also give the chance for that child to get better grades and reach better opportunities. Do you have a lawnmower? When you're mowing your lawn, could you just mow the person's next to you? Do you have a kitchen? Could you invite someone into it? Um, a couple that have just moved to the area that have no family around or a single parent family who are over for dinner and you'd, they, you know, they haven't told you how much they're struggling but they just need somewhere to go. Or maybe Cynthia. Cynthia in particular. She's an 86-year-old woman that lives just around the corner. I once parked my car pretty close to her house, not intentionally, and she came out and uh, I think she had some shopping or something. I just offered to carry it back to her house for her. And I said, look, if you ever, realizing she's probably living alone, I said, if you ever feel like just coming over, we'd love to have tea with you. And just come, knock on this door, this is the house. The next day I was at work, the next day she knocks on the door, and Tara answers the door, and she says, is this the house the pastor lives in? <laughs> and Tara said, yes, come in. And so she came in, and bless her, 86-year-old woman sitting at the small table with our three girls, having a little tea party. This is a woman that was otherwise alone, her family were miles away, but for that moment, she belonged. Just a simple have, offer and a have not. Do you have a business? Could you consider giving someone an apprenticeship or job? Do you own a property? Could you rent it out for a lower fee, a lower price, giving a family an opportunity? We've experienced and are experiencing just such a blessing through that. And finally, I just felt like the prompt, just saying, do you have a space for a child in your house? Could you consider fostering, adopting perhaps? I just feel like God is saying, actually, you know, you need to think about it. You need to weigh up the cost. But maybe now is the time when you have and someone has not. Whatever it is says that Jesus 
This is amazing, actually. Whenever it's said in the Bible that Jesus had compassion, whenever it says, as you read the Gospels, Jesus had compassion, do you know what always followed was a miracle? It always follows with a miracle. Get this. In Matthew 9, Jesus had compassion on the crowd, and he healed every disease. In Matthew 14, Jesus had compassion on the masses, and he healed every sickness. In Matthew 15, Jesus had compassion on those who had come to hear him speak, and he fed the 4,000. And in Matthew 24, Jesus had compassion on two blind men, and their sight was received. Every time that Jesus shows compassion, it was followed by a miracle. Every time we embrace compassion, a miracle can soon follow. Big or small, something miraculous can take place. All it starts is with compassion. So first of all, I want us to be a place for the poor. Secondly, I want us to be a people of compassion. That's my heart. That's a desire for this church. And the third one is that we would carry, we would share a promise of peace. What does this mean? You know, to those who love him, to those who followed him, Jesus said this. He said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. You showed me kindness and hospitality. And the guys listened to this and said, what are you talking about? We haven't done these things. We've never seen you naked. And they had no clue what he was talking about. And he said, don't you understand? Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. You see, what Jesus does is he identifies with those who are so lost and so least. He comes alongside of those. It's like a husband identifying with his wife or, or a father identifying with a child. You see, if, if you were absolutely horrible to Tara, I would be horrendous to you. I mean, it's probably better the other way around, actually. If you were horrible to me, Tara would probably kill you. She is fierce. If you were horrible she would probably take that out. She identifies with me. But if you were nice to my children, if you show compassion and kindness, then I would show that to you. An absolute stranger um, uh, was walking along the street one day when I left the house and, and Bella followed me and I didn't realize she followed me. And so she was not at home and she was not with me uh, when I went to the car. And, uh, and she was just in between. She was starting to get worried and this, this man came over to her and looked down at her and said, are you okay? Are you lost? Can I take, where are you? Where do you live? Can I take you home? And I came back at this moment and I saw this. And I didn't know who this guy was. I didn't know, you know anything about his life. But the kindness, the love he showed to my child at that very moment made me absolutely love him. Because he showed that. And for the very least of my family, the youngest, as it were, um, he showed kindness and compassion. And it was like he was showing that to me. See, what Jesus is saying is he identifies with those who are the least. That's compassion. You see, when, he, when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion and pity. They were dispirited and distressed like a sheep without a shepherd. He knows our pain. He knows the rejection we face. He knows how we feel. And as his children, how people treat us, how, how people are towards us is how people are towards him. You know, on the cross, Jesus was economically poor. He was absolutely oppressed. He, but in that moment, he took all that he has, all of his haves, his peace, his perfection, his righteousness, his life, and he gave it to those who come before him and declare, we have not. He took all of his haves in order for us who have not to give it. Paul was not exaggerating when he said this. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So what does God say about the poor? Those who lack, those who are going through a season of have not. He says, my heart breaks for them. See, they have been wronged. You have been wronged by society, by the world around you. But if you love me, if you show that person mercy in the way that I showed you mercy, if you share your food with the hungry, if you provide for the homeless with shelter, if you clothe the naked, then you love them as you love me. You see, you are hungry for significance and purpose, and I laid down my very life that you could eat the bread of life. You are homeless, feeling alone in this world, and I left the intimacy of heaven so I could come and tell you and show you the way to the place that I'm preparing for you. You are naked and ashamed. You are embarrassed about who you were and what you had to offer the world. But Jesus was stripped naked on the cross that we could be clothed in righteousness. Not because you proved that you deserved it, but because of his great mercy, because of his great love. He laid down his life and acted in compassion towards us. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will face trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is not all there is. See, when we get that, when we understand God's love for us, when we lack, when you share God's compassion for others, because when we look into the eyes of the poor, we don't just see their suffering. We see ourselves and we see God. You see, when God looks at people, he doesn't look at the brokenness. He doesn't look at the disparity. He doesn't look at what's hurting. He sees so much more. Can the band come up while I finish with this? Tara has recently got an allotment uh, locally to here. And we haven't quite progressed as a family. Uh, It's still Tara's allotment, not our allotment. Um, But um, but we were driving there one day. It's pretty nice, actually. We were driving there one day, and she asked this very profound question. She said, how do you know if a, if a piece of land, if, how do you know if a place is a good place to plant flowers or vegetables or fruit or whatever it is? How do you know that? Well, I thought long and hard and with all my wisdom, I, I really brought together the best answer I could think of was, I don't know. <laughs> but in that meantime, she managed to answer her very own question. She says, I, I think I know the answer to this. See, I think the best place to plant vegetables or plant flowers, the best place is the place where there are weeds. You see, because the thing is, if the weeds are growing, then there's a potential for life. You see, God looks at us, and we may feel that we're full of weeds. We may feel like life has just overwhelmed us. But Jesus looks at us and he says, I see the potential for life. When we look at people, may we be a place for the poor. May we be a people of compassion. But when we go around, may we also share the promise of peace. May we look at people whose lives are literally tangled up in the weeds around them, looking like they're hopeless, looking like there's no opportunity. May we look at them and look at them with the eyes of God and say, I see the potential of life.